0: Good evening, friends at the Hobson campus, and good morning to you at 95th. Um, I don't have a joke, I don't have a survey to start this weekend, I just want to start by praying. Let's, Let's go to the Lord, all right? Father, as we come together, I know that many of us carry our distractions into this place, Lord, I pray that you would wage war against those. Help us to focus. Help us to focus our attention on you. Lord, I pray for myself that you would allow me to speak your words. That we can honor you in the time that we have here. That even the things that I might say would not be distractions for the people who hear. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we started this sermon series about five weekends ago, um, I had known that God had some specific things he wanted to share with our church and impress upon my heart, and it was why we almost didn't preach this sermon series. We were planning another one, and God kind of threw a change of plans in there, as he oftentimes does. In the first week we were together, we talked about what distractions were. And if you were with us then, you may remember that we identified and defined what a distraction is. A spiritual distraction, even more specifically, is anything that steals our focus from God. The point I tried to make in that first weekend is that it's not always the overt and obvious distractions, the sins and the things that take us away from Jesus, but oftentimes it's the wrong things that we focus upon. The next week, we talked about the things, the stuff in our life that becomes a distraction to us. The week following that, it was work, ambition, the things that we do that can distract us. And last weekend, we talked about the relationships that can distract us. But this weekend, I have one question to ask as we begin. Is it possible that in your life, the church may be distracting you from God. I found something interesting in the Bible I wanted to share. Uh, Luke chapter 10. If you have the red Bibles, you can open them. I'm on page 795. This is kind of a commonly well known story. Um, and I felt God placed on my heart for a unique reason. And let's read through that story together, beginning in verse 38. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a village where a woman named Martha welcomed them into her home. Her sister, Mary, sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught. But Martha was worrying over the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, My dear Martha, You are so upset over all the details. There is really only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it. And I won't take it away from her. Now I want to look at this passage because the big question is, corporately, together as a church, as the Compass Church, are we Martha or are we Mary? Let's look at Martha for a moment. Um, Let me warn you, I'm going to be pretty harsh on Martha (laughs) to make a point. I think Martha does a bunch of things wrong in this passage. Right off the bat, I think the first thing that Martha does wrong is Martha gets distracted. Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, sitting in her living room, and Martha's making a dinner for him. And she continues to go back to the, to the kitchen and to work on the things and make sure the fine china is out and, and, and polish all the silverware and get everything ready. And she's so busy with all of the tasks that she neglects to focus on God in her own home. Martha was distracted. It is so easy for us to, to kind of come to Martha's help and be like, well, hold on, hold on. She's serving Jesus. She is serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Isn't that something that's good? Isn't it good for her to be spending her time serving Jesus? The Apostle Paul says in Acts chapter 17 that God is not served by human hands. And here we see Jesus spending time teaching and and relating with his disciples. And Mary is at his feet and Martha is in the kitchen. And how often is it that we get in the same situation where we think, well, I'm doing something for God. God. I'm doing something that's really good. God would approve of what I'm doing because it's clearly a good thing. But does that thing keep you from spending time with God? Does it distract you? Does it keep you in the kitchen away from the Savior who's in your own living room? You see, Martha was distracted, and that was her first error. Martha's second error is that Martha wanted Mary to be distracted too. Martha goes to her sister, Mary, and she tries to get Mary to do what she is doing. We'll know, because we read through the whole passage already, that Mary made the right choice. Mary is spending time with Jesus, relating with him, learning and hearing from him at his feet, and Martha wants for Mary to come with her in the kitchen. Martha is stealing Mary away from the best thing she could possibly have. We do the same thing. We do the same thing when we find a distraction and we hold on to it. If we have allowed ourselves to hear the deception that that distraction is more important than our time with God, we want others to do it with us. I think partly because it affirms what we're doing. We're not alone in it. If if these people are together with me, if we're all doing this, well, God must be happy with my group who's doing things for him, regardless of if we spend time with him, regardless of the fact that he's in our living room. God would be okay with us being away from him, doing our thing, because we're ultimately serving him anyway. And power in numbers, there's a group. We're affirmed in our actions. And so Martha makes her second error by trying to distract Mary. The third error might be the most sinister. Martha tries to manipulate Jesus into agreeing with her to distract her sister. I'm going to read that part again because I find it so interesting. I've missed it many times reading over, and I noticed it as I was preparing to speak this weekend. She comes to Jesus when she realizes that she was not having any help in the kitchen. She had more tasks than she could take care of. She comes to Jesus and she says, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister sits here while I do all the work? Now, hold on for a second. Anytime you challenge the King of Kings, a question like that, with that rhetorical type of uh, uh, tone in the voice, how, how ridiculous. To the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, sitting in her living room, Lord, wouldn't you agree with me? Wouldn't you agree that I'm right with what I'm about to say? Don't you think that it's unfair? she challenges Jesus with that question, and she goes on to even go further with it and commands the king of the universe, tell her to come and help me. (sighs) She tries to manipulate with the question, and then she directly commands Jesus, you tell her to be distracted. You tell her to go away from you. Tell her to put her relationship, connection time, her sitting there hearing from you, put that second Jesus, you tell her. I think I would be amiss if I didn't pause for a moment and just show you the nature of our loving God. (laughs) His reply is like, Fool! No. (laughs) His reply is, My dear Martha, dear Martha, you are so upset. Over all these details, there's really only one thing worth being concerned about. Can you sense the compassion and the patience in Jesus? Mary has discovered it, and I won't take it away from her. Martha doesn't even go to Mary to tell her, hey, Mary, can you, can you help in the kitchen? She goes the tattletale route immediately to Jesus, and he's patient and loving and compassionate with her right off the bat and says, my dear Martha, you're distracted And I will not command Mary to be distracted also. Now, it may have sounded harsh towards Martha, admittedly. And I think that Martha was probably a wonderful woman. I think that she may have even repented after this. And perhaps even after Jesus died and was raised again and she was with the body of believers, she may never have allowed something like that to happen again. She may have been the one at her church preaching at the women's ministry about how you should— Go to Jesus at his feet and not just try to serve him in the kitchen. That may have been Martha. The reason I find it so important is because I think it's merely a picture of what we as people have been trying to do for centuries, even millennia. It's called religion. It's when we do things for God so that he will love us. I'm not sure if that's what Martha was trying to do, gain the love of Christ through doing service for him. I'm I'm not certain that that was her ultimate motive. It may have even been simpler than that. She was just trying to do stuff, and she was distracted. But the question that I asked as we began was, is it possible that in your life, the church is distracting you from God? I think that one of the greatest ways that a church can be a distraction to people is when they hold to religion. Religion. Religion is when you do blank so that God will do blank. It's a contractual agreement. If I do this, God will do this. And that's not in the Bible. That's not how we were called to live. This last week, I was out of town. I was in Salt Lake City this whole last week, meeting with missionary partners who are there. Um, for those of you who may not know or may not remember, my wife and I are moving to Salt Lake County At the end of the summer, and we're going to go plant a church out there to be missionaries amongst those who are reaching out into the most un-Christian region of our country. Second is three times more church than Utah. And we feel this burning passion to go there. And as I spent time amongst the people there just this last week, I was so encouraged by the missionaries that we met and and kind of walked around with and, and talked with and had some chances to spend some time with some Mormon friends that I had out there to include even one opportunity where I went with uh, one of my mentors and friends out there who's been a missionary for several years in Utah to the temple complex in downtown Salt Lake City. This is the absolute Mecca for Mormonism, which is the most predominant religion in the area. And I emphasize religion when I say that because of the basic beliefs of Mormonism. Mormonism ultimately purports that we have to earn God's love, that our actions are what bring us salvation, that if we do enough good things, we may be worthy of heaven. In a nutshell, that's salvation. And so myself and my missionary friend were walking together around this temple complex, and we ran into two Mormon missionaries, young girls, who were together, and we realized we are both kind of doing the same thing. We were there trying to talk to the people about Jesus and to share the good news, and they were there to talk to people about their religion and, and win people to that religion. And as, as I approached these, these girls and as we began a conversation, I kind of thought to myself, wow, we're both kind of doing the same thing at the opposite ends, on the up- opposite teams. These girls are kind of our enemy out here, you know? That's what kind of went through my mind initially. We started the conversation with them and it ended up being about a half an hour just sharing the gospel with these girls and trying to share the truth of what the Bible says. And the friend who was with me was incredibly knowledgeable in in, in the faith and uh, particularly in the Mormon religion. And so he was such a help to help these kind of get into these conversations. And he asked, what do you believe about grace? What, What do you believe about the nature of grace and God's gift to mankind? What do you believe about it? And as he asked that question, what jumped right into my mind was Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which is one of the earliest verses I'd ever memorized. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. The whole point is that God freely gives us grace so it will not be on our works, but on his alone. And as we began this conversation with them, i realized very quickly that when a religion wants to control people and not allow them to know the truth of the real grace in the Bible, they do one of two things. They either don't let their people read the Bible or they write their own. And point in fact, these girls pulled out the Mor- Book of Mormon and they said, let me tell you what we believe about grace. And they opened up to 2 Nephi chapter 25, verse 23. She said, read this out loud. And so my, my friend grabbed the, the, the Mormon, the Book of Mormon, and he read through it, and he said, uh, he read, read that verse, For by grace you have been saved after all you can do. And he said, you see, this is different than what our Bible teaches. Because this says that it's only after you've done everything that you can accomplish that God will give you grace. And they were like, no, no, no. Basically, you just have to earn God's love. And we were like, yeah, that's, that's the problem. I think the Bible tells we don't have to earn God's love. Like, No, you don't understand. You try your hardest, and then God will love you. And I was, oh, okay, no, I'm following what you're saying. That's not what the Bible says. Well, the Bible's corrupt. This is really the right one. And you have to earn God's love. And they kept going, and it was just a cycle. Like, really? Do you, do you realize, though, the difference? Do you know what you're, what you're listening to and what you're hearing? And finally, this, this one girl got really frustrated, and she said, listen, let me talk to you as though you were an eight-year-old. And I was like, all right okay? (laughs) And she says, I don't know if, I mean, she knew we were Christians, but I don't think she knew that we were missionaries out there. She says, let me, let me tell you this story. Imagine a mother who loves her children so much that she says, in order for you to have music lessons, I'm just going to pay for them. I'm going to pay for your music lessons just out of my love. Doesn't that child now owe something to the mother? That's what she said. And I thought to myself, that's grace for you? That's grace And at that moment, I realized these girls aren't the enemy. They're the victims of the enemy. At the end of that conversation, that seemed to go nowhere. We have to leave that in the hands of the Holy Spirit. We marched to the top of a precipice behind uh, the the capital in Salt Lake City there. We could see the entire county, 1.2 million people, well over a million people completely deceived by that lie that you have to earn God's love. And we prayed over the city. And I thought that is not what God says. Try to put it in a different context. Try to think about what religion really is saying. Think about the evil that it purports. Imagine somebody who you love with an incredible amount of passion. Think of somebody in your life you have extraordinarily perfect as possible love for that person. I I think of of my little daughter, Bethany. I love my wife even more than my daughter, but I I trust my wife is not so easily deceived. And I think of my little daughter who may be. Think of the person in your life who you love like that, who may be susceptible to deceit. Imagine somebody coming into your home. I imagine someone putting Bethany on their lap and saying, Bethany, see this list? If you don't do all these things, your daddy won't love you. And he will not be your daddy anymore. If you've heard anything about my daughter, he said I love her so much. And when I return home to that, I would kick in that door in the top of my lungs. You lie! is to turn to my daughter and say, I will always love you. There's nothing you can do to make me not. I would gladly give my very life for you at the hands of men be tortured for the sake of your life. There is nothing you can say or ever do ever in your little life that will make you not my daughter. Make me not love you. God loves us infinitely more than even that. And he didn't just love us with words. He didn't just say he would die for us. He did die for us. He was tortured at the hands of men. He was spit upon and mocked even by his very own children. And his love knows no bounds. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith that not of yourselves it is the very gift of God not of works so that no one can boast. God's love for us is so great that he sent his one and only son to this earth so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life, will not perish. I think of the truth of the gospel and think that when a church would twist and allow that to be manipulated and to be turned, it turns into this disgusting religion, religion, which is not biblical truth. Now what if that wasn't just confined to the Mormon church. What if it wasn't just an issue for those in the LDS or those overseas and other unique uh, sects or, or those in different religions on the other side of the planet? What if that lie crept into our church What if that were to kind of slink through the doorways, come in, and land on your lap so that you think in some small way, perhaps, and maybe seem minuscule, that you have to do something so that God will love you? It is a lie. It is an absolute lie. There is nothing that you could do that would make God not love you. He died for you. Whether you are sitting here as a believer in Jesus saying, I follow God wholeheartedly and I try my best to live for him. I have surrendered everything that I have to him. Or if you are the one sitting there and saying, I'm not even sure if I believe in this God. And if I did, I'm kind of upset with him for things he's done in the past in my life. Even if you were in either one of those seats, God loves you infinitely and perfectly. And religion is the lie that tells you that you must earn his love, that you must earn salvation, that you must work for it. And it will not be spoken in here. And sometimes I think we need to be challenged by that. I do not believe for a moment that I have to earn my way into heaven, but I do, on occasion, struggle with trying to do good things to please God. You see, good works are extraordinarily important. They are very powerful, but good works are not a prerequisite for salvation. They are a product of salvation. When you love God and have given your heart to God and say, I want to follow and obey you, he begins to change you, turn you into a new creation. You can't help but do things that are right. You can't help but do good works because of how much you love God. But you don't do it so that you get into heaven. You do it because God has already invited you. And we are all susceptible to the lie, even a little bit of it, that we'll sin, we'll err, we'll do things that are wrong, and then we'll just try to do more good things later to even that out. And I've known Christians to do this exact same thing that it just, maybe if I even it out a little bit, we'd never say it out loud, but we live that way. You know, I haven't really lived life right in these past several years, so what if I just volunteer at the church? That will will wash that away. What if I just read the Bible more? What if I tithe extra? That will, that will somehow solve that. God will see that I'm sincere of heart, that I'm trying, I'm efforting to get back to him. And I'll tell you right now, if somehow you have bought into that lie, into that deceit, if you have started on, a, on a, a project here and started to serve the church in some capacity and you're doing it because you think you need to gain God's love, stop doing that and just come here and hear the truth over and over, preached over your life. Because that lie cannot get in. It will turn to religion so quickly and it will lead you to a place that you were never made to go. We've got to be so careful about that. I know that people in this culture around here, uh, it happens sometimes with money. Man, I've seen I've been to all kinds of bad things. Maybe if I just gave a little more money to the church. Maybe if I just tithe more or found a way to provide, uh, you know, funds for a project. We don't want your money if that's why you're giving it. I'm serious. I'm a pastor saying that to you. If you struggle with that, do not give. If you think that that money will somehow close the gap between you and God, do not give a dime because it will not work. We don't want to stand between you and God on that, hoping that we're paying a toll to the church to get closer to God. Because what happens is that when you love God and as you, you see that he loves you infinitely and unconditionally without restraint, your love becomes so overwhelming for him. You don't care about your stuff and then you end up becoming generous. But you don't act generous to win his love. You become generous because you have it. The church can become an extraordinary distraction when it holds to, when it preaches or lives out religion. And it can happen even in the individual level of people, not even knowing that they're doing it. Challenge your hearts on that. Have you been distracted by religion? Has any part of your life been trying to compensate for your bads? so that you can please God? If you could do that, then the cross wasn't necessary. You can't out-sin the cross. You can't do things that God says, well, all the other sins were covered, but that one wasn't. When God saved you today, he knew of all of your sins in the future and still saved you. That means that when he has saved you, you are forgiven for your sins, past, present, and future. You don't need to keep coming back. As 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 a child, I remember... I remember praying the the sinner's prayer over and over. Every time I'd go to a Christian camp or something like that, I'd be, oh man, just in case, just in case I wasn't saved before. Let me pray this again so that I can get back. We don't have to live like that. We can have the peace of knowing that God has secured our salvation because of Jesus. And every one of us will stand before God someday. And he will say, why do you deserve to be in heaven? And every one of us must say, I do not. But Jesus stands next to his Father in heaven and says, it's okay, he's with me. And we enter in. God loves us. Do not buy into the lie of religion. It is probably the greatest way that the church can become an extraordinary distraction. God wants you in your sin. He wants you in your brokenness. And as I spoke with those Mormon missionaries, one thing that the girls kept saying over and over that was so heavy on my heart was once you've done enough, once you've cleaned up enough, then you're good enough to go to God, and then he might do something for you. And Romans 5, 8 came pounding through my mind over and over and over again. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In my sin, dead on the ground, God came and saved me. Not because I came to him and earned my way, cleaned myself up nice and pretty. God wants the rough draft. Not some future perfected version of you. He wants you now. I think that church... Is the greatest distraction for people who think that they are saved by it. I think the church can be an extraordinary distraction in that way. I know that there are many different religions who say that that is true. That the way that you you win yourself to God, that you earn your way to Him, is you have to go to a church. If you found the right one, or if you go to that right one enough, or you invest in that one by serving or by giving, then you will be able to be closer to God. It's all part of that religious lie. And perhaps the greatest, most terrible part of this distraction is when somebody who is not saved comes to the church and hears that the way I get saved is just by going to it. And I don't hear the message of salvation at all. I, I've heard from people before about, you know, Richard, no, I, 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 uh, I've been a Christian for four years, five years now. I say, oh, well, that's awesome. How did you come to know the Lord? They go, oh, um... Well, my friend invited me to church, which is awesome, by the way. Um, and so I came, and I kind of liked it, and so I've pretty much been coming ever since. I'm like, that's great, but what does that have to do with your salvation? Like, how did you come to know the Lord? Like, what happened? Was there a season? For some of us, it's, it's a season of time, and we don't know exactly how it happened, but we know that back here we weren't saved, and here we are. Or, or was it a day, a moment? Like, what was it? How do you know you were saved? Well, I just told you I've been coming to church for five years. Let me tell you something, and I say this because I love you, and I feel like if we can't say this in church from the front to you, man, we're we're all hurting. Okay, being in a church doesn't make you any more a Christian than standing in a garage makes you a car. Right? Just coming does not save your soul. Now I wanted to say the second because first was religion, making it very clear to you that you don't have to do anything special or unique. You don't have to clean yourself up in order for God to love you. He loves you now, whether you are or not a believer. He still loves you now. That rough draft that walked in the door today. If you think that you're going to come and, and church is going to be your salvation, it's not. Church cannot save you. It was not its intended function. Church is the body of Christ. Church is the bride of Christ. You need the head himself. You need the bridegroom. You need Jesus and Jesus alone. He is the only one who can save you. And I'll tell you, time and time again, I get the wonderful opportunity to spend time with people who are at the point, they're like, man, I've been hearing this stuff. I've been coming pretty regularly. My kids like this. You know, all the things have made it so I want to be here. And I I think that this is true. And I might even believe that it's true. But what what now? How how does the next step go? And I spend time sharing the gospel truth with people. And it's one of the coolest things I get to do. But... Uh, here's how this really works. Here's how this really looks. I try to use this example because I think it can be helpful. Uh, People will sometimes say to me, you know, I I thought I accepted Christ and everything's going okay, but I'm the exact same now as I was back then. All the same deceptions, all the same all the same desires, all the same frustrations, all the same— I mean, nothing is going on at all in my life. Actually, it kind of seems things might be getting a little bit worse in my life. And I just—why wh- wh- is it that I feel like I'm at the exact same place I was 10 years ago when I started coming to church and doing this? And, and you know what? Here's, here's what I, I try to explain to that. I say, it's possible that I, there might be sin in your life that you need to repent of. There might be something in there that's, that's, that's truncating your, your potential growth that's being an obstacle between you and God, and God's trying to help get that out so that you can continue to grow and be like him, and you're saved, and you're, he's trying to progressively sanctify you, work in your life. I said, it might be because God is putting you through a trial or a test right now. He may have hard things ahead, and he wants you to experience some difficulties so that you can be trained and prepared for that. I said, lastly, you might not be saved. You might not be a Christian. There are a few verses in the Bible that scare me to read. Coming to mind is Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, About those who will will think that they're saved and are not, he'll say, Listen, many people, many will say, Lord, Lord, when they they get to heaven someday, when they when they get to the end of life someday. And I have have prophesied in your name. I've done miracles in your name. I have cast out demons in your name. I've served you my whole life. And Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. But Jesus, I sat in the church every every single weekend. I was in that same seat. I listened. And and when they wanted to give money to a capital campaign, I did it. And when they wanted to send missionaries, I went with. And and I I put my kids in the programs. And Jesus is going to say, But what about me? What about your relationship with me? You see, giving your life to Christ, finally crossing that chasm to becoming a believer is like two kings on a battlefield. Imagine two kings who are on a battlefield and one is, sees that defeat is imminent. And so they confer, they come together to that, that kind of king's council there where one king who is losing the battle gets down on his knees, he takes off his crown and he hands his crown to the new king. I surrender my kingdom to you. My robe is now yours. My scepter of control is now yours. My army is now yours. My kingdom belongs to you. Nothing that I had is mine any longer. All of it is yours. That is salvation. When we go to God and we don't, we don't say all this stuff is yours, but this one thing that I—you worry about that later. This is, this is my thing, Jesus— that, that stuff, you can work on that. I want you just to fix those parts of my life. And we hold back the idol in our lives that we either think we can fix or we're not willing to surrender. And God says, that's not full surrender. Maybe you haven't given your life fully to Christ. You understand this is not cleaning yourself up. This is not sinning less. This isn't those things. This is saying, God, I surrender it to you. There's nothing that I have that is mine any longer. It is yours, and I give everything over. That's salvation. That's salvation. God becomes the new king, begins working in your life. For those of you who are worried, that's a big step. I'm not sure I'm strong enough to surrender everything. Well, praise the Lord, because he's strong enough to take it. And he loves us enough, and he wants that complete, unabated surrender to him. Are you saved? When you study the scriptures, when you read those, and you see what the Bible says about what it's like when you become saved and how God begins working in you, does that feel right or not? Is this a little awkward talking about this? The truth is, we should talk more about this here than anywhere else. Are, 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 are you genuinely saved? We, man, how important. The single most important thing we do. Are you all right? Are you all right? Are you there? I think there's another possible way that the church can become a distraction. Not just through religion, not just through those having a wrong opinion of the church, thinking that it will save you. But a church that focuses on people is distracting her people. Here's here's, here's a quick quiz for you. Um, Should the focus of your church be on believers or unbelievers? The answer is neither. The focus of God's church is on God. Our highest priority is worship of God. We worship God through the obedience to the Great Commission. We we obey what he says, but our highest priority is God and God alone. Do you remember last week we went through Mark chapter 12 and the single greatest commandment when when Jesus was asked, what's the single greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That is the highest purpose of the church, is to worship adore, to love God. Our primary focus is not on those inside the church and it's not on those outside the church. It is on God and God alone. Sometimes we can spend so much effort and so much time. Well, maybe if I just invite this friend, then this will happen. And if I invite that one, oh, that we missed that, that opportunity to invite our friend. Well, maybe next year Kids Camp will come and we'll invite them to that. That's how we'll do this. And, and God is saying, listen, look at this for a moment. It's wonderful to invite the church. I think we should never stop inviting people to church. It's one of the things I love about the compass is we've always made that a big deal. And we've made it easy for you to go out and do. But just inviting to church is not salvation. It teaches somebody that church alone is what can save you. Look, people have asked me before, so you're going to plant a church? Well, how many people are you going to have? We're like, um, Bethany, me, Lord. You know, We don't have very many. We're like, well, how are you going to get people into your church? I say, listen, I'm not worried about getting people in. I'm, uh, the trick is getting them back out. Have you known this about churches? It can be so easy just to come in and become part. Like, hey, we're just—church's whole purpose becomes just making service and, and then things for the people in the church. We just kind of love being on a little cruise ship and going along, and we have to fight against that and resist against it. The truth is that can happen to us so easily, and we can neglect the fact that our highest goal, highest purpose, is to worship God and God alone. You've heard that song that was just sung before I came up here, and those words are cutting razor sharp. And they're true because they come directly from the scriptures. It's almost exactly what God says in Isaiah chapter 1. Let me read this to you, starting in verse 11, because God looked down on his people and they stopped focusing on him. They were distracted by themselves, by each other, by religion, by all kinds of things. And while they did every ritual that God commanded for them to do, it had nothing to do with God anymore. It was all only about them and other people. Starting in verse 11, I am sick of your sacrifices, says the Lord. Don't bring me any more burnt offerings. I don't want the fat from your rams or other animals. I don't want to see the blood from your offerings of bulls and rams and goats. Why do you keep parading through my courts with your worthless sacrifices? The incense you bring me is a stench in my nostrils. Your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath day and your special days for fasting, even your most pious meetings— are all sinful and false. I want nothing more to do with them. I hate your festivals and sacrifices. I cannot stand the sight of them. From now on, when you lift up your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look. Even though you offer many prayers, I will not listen, for your hands are covered with the blood of your innocent victims. Oh. That whole list were things that God commanded of his people to do. Why is he so mad? because they didn't do it for him anymore because it was all about other people and it wasn't about him it wasn't about God alone it was about themselves and how they would look and it was religion and it was false and the same thing that works itself out in little ways with a Martha and Mary scenario distracted from Jesus to do things for him that's when we trade we, we trade knowing God for knowing about God That's when we trade singing songs of praise to Jesus for singing songs about Jesus. It's when we trade a relationship with the living God for a contractual agreement with the big man upstairs. It changes everything. If a passage like that scares you, it should. I thank the Lord that he continues. Listen to how God talks to his people even after that, that rebuke. Come now, let us argue this out, says the Lord. No matter how deep the stain of your sins, I can remove it. I can make you as clean as freshly fallen snow. Even if you're stained as red as crimson, I can make you as white as wool. If you will only obey me and let me help you, then you will have plenty to eat. But if you keep turning away and refusing to listen, you will be destroyed by your enemies. I, the Lord, have spoken. How powerful. Our God loves us and He desperately loves His church. Please don't ever allow the church to become the distraction in your life. As a leader in this church and in churches in general, and we are very blessed to have a church like this. One thing that I know about this church is that at any moment we feel convicted by doing things that haven't been right before God, there's repentance that follows. And a change and a whole renewing process. So we can see more people come to know him again. I want to pray right now and close. And as I do that, I would just ask that we take just just a moment, just a minute or so, just to quiet our hearts, to have no distractions, just for a minute. Just just for a short time. It's going to feel like an eternity. Just let it be silent. You pray and ask God, God, step in real quick. Have we allowed even this, this to distract us? Maybe repent if we need to. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, forgive us if that's ever been us. Lord, I know it's easy in my life even to to buy into a portion, it's just a little part of the lie of religion sometimes. Try to do good things. Maybe you'll be really pleased if I do them. But Lord, I know and any good work, that's a product of you sanctifying a person. It's not a prerequisite for their salvation. Father, help us. Search our hearts. There's anything in there that shouldn't be exposed. Let's reunite, point ourselves to you, focus on you and you alone. And pray this in Jesus' name.